Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod, Politics of Climate Change Debate, recorded live at Tunbridge School as part of the Tunbridge Talks Festival of the Environment with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my guests. I'd like to introduce my panel. Anne Julie, UK Head of Corporate Sustainability at BNP Paribas. And before Anne Julie joined Paribas, she ran a multiple number of social and environmental projects in India and France. She worked with the Obama administration at the Council of Environmental Quality, the International Energy Agency, and with the former US Vice President Al Gore's The Climate Project, launching the Indian chapter in 2008. Next to Anjuli, we have David Hone, who is Chief Climate Change Advisor at, in the Shell Scenarios team for Shell International. His career spans refinery technology, oil trading and shipping areas. David is a board member of the International Emissions Trading Association and a regular climate blogger and an author of a recent book on climate change, Putting the Genie Back, Solving the Climate and Energy Dilemma. We're also joined by April Clark, who's Green Party councillor for Tunbridge and Morling. And April was elected in May of this year, and she's one of the first Green councillors in West Kent. She's also the local Green Party parliamentary candidate. She's an HR director and the former vice chair of a national disability charity. Not only did she found the South of Tunbridge WI, she also actively supports refugees in her community and is a, a local volunteer in many other issues. And our fourth panellist is Gareth Redman King, Head of Climate Change for the Worldwide Fund for Nature, where he leads a team of climate specialists focused on UK policy and action to reduce emissions across all sectors to tackle climate change. He works across the WWF Global Network, focusing on greenhouse gas removal options, cooperation and engagement with business on climate change. Before joining WWF, Gareth worked for the UK government for 15 years across a range of policy portfolios. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our panel. So over the last few months, a new phrase has entered our lexicon, climate emergency. Governments, local authorities, businesses, universities and institutions are declaring climate emergencies all over the UK and the world. But what does that really mean? We're at a tipping point for the planet. The rate of global heating is at an unprecedented level, and it's highly likely we'll not be able to keep to the suggested 1.5 degrees of warming over pre-industrial levels, as recommended by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Many scientists think we'll struggle to keep to the rise of two degrees, and others are even more pessimistic and think we could well hit five degrees. But what does that really mean for us as individuals, families, communities and countries? And how can we influence big business and governments to behave differently? Climate change is about economics, social structures and politics. Our debate tonight will cover all of those issues and more. So before I open it up to, to the floor to take questions, I'd like to start with our panellists who are going to address individually a key question. What are the political and social challenges we face as a result of climate change? And if I could ask you, David, to kick us off. Good. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me here this evening. I, I think from, with someone like me with an engineering background, I, I really look at this from the perspective of the, the energy system and the changes that have to happen 
to, to get the world to net zero emissions. So this is the point at which you're no longer adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And we, are, we have an energy system today that's 80% that's dependent on fossil fuels and, and has been for decades and, and has grown from a, a coal base prior to the Industrial Revolution. And in leaving, collectively leaving the climate change issue to, to really very late in the, uh, in the span of time, we're left with having to get the energy system to net zero emissions potentially in as little as 30 years. And it's a struggle to see how that will happen, given the, the, the capital invested, given the, uh, the technologies required, and given the, uh, the, the time it takes to actually plan things, implement them, decide on them, and then actually build them. And, uh, and so this is, you know, both from a personal view, and, and, and we see this, you know, in Shell is perhaps the, the biggest challenge of all. And even in Shell, we're, you know, we're, we're constantly challenged as, well, why can't you just change? Why can't you go faster? Why can't you be this or that? And, and the company is certainly setting out a position where it, it intends to shift as the energy system shifts as well. But the real question is how fast can the energy system move? Uh, so the UK, as we know, has set a, a goal of net zero emissions for 2050. And I think, you know, that, that given the UK economy and given what goes on in the country, I think that, that's potentially possible. Um, but globally, to, 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 to get to that level in 2050 is perhaps going beyond the possible. Uh, you know, in, in, in working in the scenarios department, we're challenged with looking at this issue and looking at how fast the energy system can move. And we think that the goals of the Paris Agreement can be met. Um, but we're probably not going to see the world at net zero emissions until at least 2070. And even then, we're going to have to rely on technologies that capture carbon dioxide and remove it and store it geologically to, to just balance out emissions that are remaining from, from systems that we don't really have technological solutions for yet uh, and, and will take time to develop. So speed is of the essence and, 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 and the shape of that journey is, is complex because of that. Um, it can be done though. And I think just one last point, I, I think there's really great cause for optimism though. And, and that optimism comes from the fact that there's now a set of technologies on the table that throughout the course of this century will resolve this issue one way or the other. Uh, either at well below two degrees C, but, but the five degrees that you mentioned, I, I, I think that's off the table now. The, the, there's, there's too much momentum in the change that's already underway to imagine that this issue just persists and persists and persists. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic from that perspective. You can sort of see an end to it. Whether we can bring it in within the goals of the Paris Agreement is very challenging. But it's a contained problem now and one that collectively can be solved this century. Okay, thank you for starting us off. April, could I turn to you? Yeah, sure. So um, the political and social challenges we face as a result of climate change. I think there's two things that I'd like to talk about. The first is about recognizing that the environment is actually at the core of everything and that all other threats to economic, social well-being, they're all part of the same problem and we can't solve them without solving uh, the climate crisis. 
And the second problem, I think, is finding a way to work together to solve our biggest issues in what I think is an increasingly fractured political environment where people are disengaging from politics altogether. So the Green Party, my party, believes a system based on inequality and exploitation is threatening the future of our planet and encouraging reckless, environmentally damaging, uh, unsustainable consumerism. And our environment and the climate crisis is a problem that's so big that we have to tackle it together at all levels, in our communities, at national government level, internationally. This isn't something we're just going to solve by recycling more or taking less flights. Uh, we need a, a whole systems change. And I think that only government can really set the conditions for this to happen. The UK was one of the first countries to recognize and act on the economic and security threats of climate change. We passed the Climate Change Act in 2008, which committed us to reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050. And this year, the act was amended to reduce the target to net zero emissions uh, by 2050. But we know that this is still not going to be ambitious enough to meet, uh, to meet what we need to do and to prevent lasting damage. And we also know that the policies of the government today are not going to even get us to the original target, let alone the new one. But the good news, I think, is that the awareness of the scale and urgency of the climate emergency that we're facing is increasing all the time. I think we've reached a tipping point of moving beyond arguing about whether climate change exists or not, and we're not able to spend more energy on how best to deal with it. Over a quarter of Britons now say that the environment is one of their top three issues facing the country, behind only Brexit and health. But and it's a big but, this awareness has come at a time which I think is one of the most challenging for politics in decades. So right now, I think trust of politicians is an all-time low. The main parties are suffering from a leadership vacuum. Since 2015, we've had a referendum, two general elections, we'll probably have another one this year, um, and the country's actually more divided than ever. So I wanted to just do a quick poll, if that's okay. I think I can just about see you guys. I wanted to ask you to raise your hand if you are a member of a political party. Ah, very good, quite a few. Can you raise your hand if you would consider joining a party? A couple mm. more, excellent. Um, can you raise your hand if you don't see today that there is any party that represents you enough for you to join them? Okay, yeah. there's a fair forest of hands out there. <laughs> Quite a few. And I think that, that really resonates with what I hear when I talk to people on the doorstep, when I talk to people in the community. People are disenfranchised with politicians and the party system. They don't feel like they belong. They don't see how they can contribute. And in my view, the underlying issue is the electoral system because it rewards competitive instead of collaborative behavior like we see on Prime Minister's Question Times where they're all just taking pot shots and scoring points. It results in mediocrity because it encourages safe center ground policies that won't lose votes instead of the bold, innovative solutions we need to address the climate crisis. In May this year, I was elected together with my uh, colleague Mark Hood as one of the first ever Green councillors in this area. We had 80% of the vote in our ward. Uh, between Mark and I, we got 11% of the vote, but 4% of the seats. The Conservatives got 47% of the vote and 72% of the seats. This seems unfair to me, and I think it's all thanks to the first-past-the-post voting system. Then, in June, history was made in the Chamber of Tunbridge and Morling Borough Council when the first motion brought before the council in over 12 years was passed, declaring a climate emergency. Coincidence? It's a great example of how even though we're only two green councillors against 52 other councillors, our election sent a really strong message that our community is watching what the council's doing, they expect more and better, and we can hold them to account. 
We've seen that with Brexit, you don't have to be in power in politics to influence the agenda. And until we can get more Green Party councillors and MPs elected, that's exactly what we need to do. Time and time again, we are seeing policies that seemed radical when the Green Party first proposed them, slowly becoming part of the conversation and then showing up in the manifesto of the main parties. For Mark and I to get elected, we spent three years organizing local campaigns like Keep River Lawn Green, volunteering in the community, and most importantly, knocking on doors and talking to people one by one about what they believed and how we thought we could help. There is a real green revolution taking place in Tunbridge right now, and it is personal and it is powerful. Many of the people who supported us hadn't voted green before or even thought that they were political. We're just ordinary people trying to get things done. And it's at this level that I have the most hope for a new kind of politics in the future, the level that brings people and communities together to genuinely try and actually solve mutual problems for the common good. Anjali, to you. Um, I think when we look at, I'm gonna give you the business perspective. Um, today I work in a bank, but I've worked in lots of different corporates as well before. And when we look at what are the social and political challenges of climate change fundamentally for a business, it's relevancy because no matter what, even if we start off slow, even if we're not going as quick as we need to, as David mentioned, we will have to address climate change. And it'll either be because we're all living underwater as the sea levels rise and we're losing millions of people to disease and famine, et cetera, or it'll be because we see the threat coming so close that the governments and the policymakers um, catch up and start to push that regulation and force every single business. But sitting in the business seat now, we can feel that coming. And we see young people on the streets at Extinction Rebellion, and we think to ourselves, how are we gonna make sure that we get those young people to wanna work in our companies? How are we gonna make sure that they identify with our brand and the values of our brand and we attract the right talent? You know, we see the regulators discussing, um, in France, we had Article 173, which asks, or which demands of all investors to report on their carbon emissions within their portfolio, which means that the companies in their portfolio need to provide that data to those investors, which then trickles down. And we see that that impending regulation, whether it be carbon price, whether it be a, um, a carbon tax, whatever it's going to be, is coming. You know, And so the question that we ask ourselves fundamentally is how are we going to be relevant in that world? And if I take the example of finance and in my industry, um, and we found that relevance in something called sustainable finance. You know, the COP15 2009 was a really tough year for the climate battle. Um, and we believed that year when uh, all the governments came together and climate change was at the top of the agenda um, and in the wake of Lehman Brothers crashing and the financial crisis, and we thought maybe we were gonna get this policy across the line and we called it Floppenhagen because it was a total disaster. And it wasn't until fast forward Paris 2015 that we actually got that agreement across the line. And when that happened, I mean, I don't know what you feel, but um, it shook us. It shook, I mean, I think all of us even working on environment were surprised that we actually achieved that. We, we weren't sure. And I distinctly remember I was working for the Tata Group and the foreign minister of France came to visit my chairman and I was invited to the meeting and I was to prep my chairman on all the things that we did in France at the time and he didn't want to talk about business. All he wanted to talk about was climate change. And it was a phenomenal effort uh, by the French government. And so they called us up as a French bank. I work for BNP Paribas. And they said, we need business to take a massive stance. 
the world governments have come together. They've signed a really tough document to sign. And we need to show that the private sector is committed to making this a reality because we know that what's going to come next is a lot of squabble between governments and slow action. And, and to be fair, that's what pushed us. And we looked at ourselves as a finance institution and we were like, what is our relevancy? Because it had been shaken after 2008. Reputational damage of all banking industry, a question of what the function of a bank is supposed to be was at the heart of this conversation. And what we've realized is that in solving the climate crisis, in let's look broader and solving the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 sustainable development goals that have also been agreed by 194 nations, which range from no poverty, zero hunger, health issues, etc., saying that for the first time arguing that we cannot have environmental performance at the cost of social performance, but actually whatever solutions we look for in climate change have to work within the social system that we need to survive in as people as well. That means jobs, that means access to energy, you know, and in countries like India, where I'm from, 480 million people without access to energy, you know, is life or death. And then you're trying to figure out how do you find them affordable energy, which also is going to contribute to what we need to do for the climate crisis. It puts a lot of challenges out for the private sector to potentially find solutions that are going to be tomorrow's technology and tomorrow's business. And that's where we found our place, is it's our job to help move the capital that's required from the, those who have it to those who need it to find the solutions and business models that are going to achieve the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and going to achieve what we need to achieve for the Paris 21 Agreement. And so what I do is I work between investors, pension funds, insurance companies, institutional investors, and large corporates who are trying to demonstrate that they are changing their business models towards sustainability. And that's what we call sustainable finance. And in doing that, it has revolutionized the way that we as a business see our role in society. And I believe that every single business is at some part of that trajectory today. You know, whether they're in an early stage of realizing that this is kind of a threat and potentially their business model will not be relevant in the future and they need to decide what that means for the kind of business that they want to run, or whether they've taken on sustainability and they're halfway through the journey of saying, this is how we're changing our business, this is why young people should buy our brand, and that could mean fast fashion, that could mean the energy industry, that could be telecom, that could be digital, you cannot escape it. And so I think the major social and environmental challenge for the business sector is actually the opportunity that they have um, to be part of the solution and the serious threat that they face if they are not. Thank you. Interesting to get the business perspective to balance the political mm -hmm. one. And last but not least, Gareth. OK, so um, I want to start by going back to your point about um, why it's no longer enough to talk about climate change anymore and why um, we need to talk about this as a climate crisis or a climate emergency. And I think it, it refers to the point that David made about having left this quite late. And we're now at the point where we're the last generation capable of acting in time to avert climate breakdown. So I think it's just important to reflect on what we mean by a climate emergency. And I think there are four things that define why it is an emergency rather than simply about change anymore. The first is the point that's already been alluded to around the rate uh, and, and extent of, of, of warming um, over the last century, that um, for 12,000 years, humans have lived with uh, uh, temperature going between plus and minus um, one degrees. That's, what's, that's what enabled us to flourish on this planet. And now we're at more than that. We're at more than one degree 
uh, of warming already. That masks extremes. It's twice that in the Arctic. It's as much as four degrees in Svalbard, the fastest warming um, place on the planet. And now the world's climate scientists, the IPCC, have warned us that if we carry on emitting at the current rate, then we've only got around a decade before we lock in another half degree of warming. And we see the impacts now at just over one degree. We know they get much worse at one and a half degrees. And we know that once we get past that and we get towards two degrees, they become irreversible. The second reason is one that has been very much in the news today. One in six species globally are at risk of extinction as a result of, climate, of the climate crisis. As human beings, given the length of our lifespan, we shouldn't actually see species go extinct. The, the background extinction rate, as scientists refer to it, should see a, a mammal going extinct every 700 years, an amphibian every 1,000 years, and now the rate is thousands of times higher than that. For amphibians, the most endangered class of species on the planet at the moment, it's 45,000 times that rate. So we are driving the sixth mass extinction, and we're doing it here in the UK as well, where one in seven of the 8,400 species are at risk of disappearing because of our actions. Thirdly, another point that's been alluded to, we know what we need to do to tackle the climate crisis. All the technologies, all the tools that we need are in place somewhere. Many of them are cheaper than the fossil fuels that we've come to rely on. And, and we know all this, and that's what got us over the line in Paris to agree to keep warming to well below two degrees, to agree to go for efforts to one and a half degrees. But the problem is that we're, no, we're not on track for one and a half degrees. We're not on track for two degrees. If everybody does everything they've already promised to do in the Paris Agreement, we're still on track for more than three degrees. And of course, if they don't do what they've promised to do, then actually four and five degrees do then come back onto the table. And fourthly, of course, we're not separate from nature. We don't own nature. We're not, it's not something other. We're part of nature. Um, we exist, life exists on this planet because of a very particular set of circumstances. As far as we know, they don't exist anywhere else in the universe. Um, so actually what we're messing with here is our life support systems. So if we carry on emitting, if we carry on warming, if we carry on cutting a swathe through nature, then we are, it becomes existential for us as well. It's not just about other species. So I think that the political challenge here is one of leadership. Um, and April alluded to former, you know, to, to UK leadership on this in the past, and the Climate Change Act was the, the first of its kind. And now the target has been set for at least 100% uh, of emissions reductions by 2050. But setting a target is easy. You know, uh, I, can, I can set a target to lose weight. Doesn't mean it's going to happen unless I take action. So what we need now is the political leadership to make this a top priority across all parts of government. At best, it's a top priority in a couple of departments at the moment. It needs to be a top priority across all of government, and we need the policy and the resource to deliver it, which means a green spending review. It means, we think, 5% of government spending committed to tackling the nature and climate emergency. That's an extra £25 billion a year. That sounds a lot. But the Conservatives did announce 25 billion for new roads the other day. So, you know, the money's there. Um, the social challenge is one uh, that's been alluded to as well by Angela, one of doing this in a way that balances people, and, and I would also add in nature as well as action on climate. For people, that means that government have to do this with people. They have to deliver climate action with people. Um, we've seen in France what happens if you don't do that. We've seen the Yellow Jackets uh, demonstrations. You get a backlash. And that doesn't only stop you in what you were trying to do that they object to and are demonstrating against. 
it risks slowing down climate action. And we have left it late, and we don't have time for that climate action to be slowed down. Extinction Rebellion talk about citizens' assemblies, and we need something in that space. We need to, we, in, in the not too distant future, we're going to need to go into 20 million homes in the UK uh, and make them energy efficient. We're going to need to go and take gas boilers out and put something else in its place. We need fewer cars on the road, and we need those cars to be zero emissions. You can't just do this to people. We're a liberal democracy, or we were at the time when I wrote these notes. I mean, you know, <laughs> politics moves fast. But in a liberal democracy, you have to do it with people's consent. You can't just do it to people. For nature, we've lost on average 60% of wildlife populations since 1970. So we must do climate action in a way that expands and protects habitats and supports, and, uh, supports the growth uh, of wildlife and nature. Um, we need to farm our food in ways that enhance soils, protect pollinators, cut methanes from livestock. All of these things mean uh, changes to how we live, things like eating less meat and dairy, and it means changes to how the countryside is going to look and how it's managed. And again, we're going to have to do this with people and we're going to have to do this with nature. But my final point would be to go back to that point about um, that April was making about the things that divide us and the things that unite us. The, uh, in this country, it's not an issue that we need to do this anymore. I'm sure we can all think of something that maybe divides the country at the moment. But actually, climate action is not one of them. In recent polling, 85% of people say that they are worried about climate change. Um, three quarters of them quite rightly believe that the impacts are being seen here in the UK now. And two thirds of them want politicians to act, uh, to, to, to tackle this, this climate and nature emergency that we face. So that's why we need, we need all to be making our voices heard. We need to be demanding that leadership from our politicians, and we need to be demanding that action from businesses as well, um, whose job needs to be in part helping to, us to, to make the, the right decisions, helping making it easier for us to reduce our impact. And we need to do it now, because we're very definitely running out of time. Yeah, thank you. Fascinating to see the areas of crossover um, amongst my guests and um, possible areas of, of division of tactics or, or approaches. I'm sure we have questions. I can sort of see the floor. So is, is there anyone out there who'd like to kick us off with a question for the panel? Thank you. All the time, I, I keep hearing people say, governments have got to do something. Manufacturers have got to do something. Industry's got to do something. Everybody wants somebody else to do something. I want people, individuals, to do something. You know, I heard people talking. Uh, there was a journalist that went when uh, Greta first came on the scene. They went to an airport and said, yes, yes. All these people were agreeing that um, what she was doing was a good thing until it was suggested that... Um, Extinction Rebellion may stop the planes flying. And they all went, oh, no, no, we can't have that. I need my holiday now. So people are very demanding that other people do something. That's not good enough. Do you have a quite specific question? Uh, <laughs> and that, was sorry, a sorry. Uh, that was a fantastic uh, statement, and we applaud uh, it. But. Well, on a personal level, I would love, and I don't know if you would agree, I've been a vegan 37 years because I don't think we should get the methane out of the animals. 
I think we should stop eating the animals so they don't have to be bred, fattened, slaughtered for us to eat. I don't believe we should keep flying pla in planes. Okay, Sorry, so call, it's not call, really a question. <laughs> call for individual action, but I'm just to pick up on that point, uh, the, the statistics show that actually the most beneficial thing you can do to reduce carbon emissions is not to become a vegan, important as that is, it's to stop taking flights, isn't it? And, and recycling is wonderful. You mentioned the recycling scheme, and that is fantastic. But actually, the thing that will make the most difference is cutting back on, on air travel. But how are we to function in a, in a liberal democracy in an international world if we don't, if we don't fly? Can I jump in? So I don't think government is other people, though, is the problem. Um, governments, governments do have a role in this. I, I agree with you. I agree that there are things that we need to do and everybody should be taking action and we all have a responsibility. This is a shared home, this, this one planet that we have. But we know that not everybody will. And we know that the only way that you can make everybody take action is to regulate for it. Um, so you either do that in a very extreme form, in a sort of command economy, or you do that in, in subtle ways that nudge people or not so subtle ways that nudge people. And my examples would be on flying, there were numbers that came out the other day that showed that in England, about 10% of people take about 50% of the flights. So yes, we should fly less, but do, does that mean we all need it? Should you be feeling guilty about that one time in 40 years? I don't think so. Um, I think the people who fly several times a week um, should, are not going to feel guilty. So I think we need to do something to make them change. I think we need a frequent flyer levy. Um, to make it uh, harder. And, and my evidence, and, and I guess my evidence that this can work is that um, we need to, you know, we need to stop taking plastic bags from the supermarket because we're tipping them into the oceans and they're doing all sorts of terrible time. It's not climate change, it's a different problem, a different pollution problem. But there are lots of people who will take action, there are lots of people who have their own bags and will go to shops with their own bags, but there are lots of people who won't. Um, but the moment you put five pence tax on it, they fell by 80, the take-ups fell by 85%. So government has a role, businesses have a role to find the alternatives, and individuals have a role. We, we all need to, we're, we're all part of this society. So it's not about passing it on to somebody else, it's about how we all do this together. And Julie, can I come to you? Because you mentioned um, regulation, and actually that was a driver for change. Mm. So, so what are your thoughts on that? I think the good news is that industries and governments are all made up of individual people. And I think there's a huge debate that I don't think there's a right answer, but there's a massive debate of should it be the individual's responsibility to make the smarter choices exactly like how you are chosen to live your life, which is extremely honorable and I can imagine challenging also because you're going against the current system, or is it the system that needs to adapt to the individuals? And I would make the argument that we need both because the truth is, is that why do we fly and why do we have, you know, why have we built these international business models and everything? On one hand, it has brought us the most beautiful understanding of our global context. We can go and see the most gorgeous places in the world and why we need to protect them. We can understand Japanese food in London and we can share cuisines and we can have all kinds of cultural, in, you know, exciting engagements that we could not have before when we lived in isolated silos, when we could not travel and transport our learnings and our knowledge across the world. But the problem with globalization is that it has also caused us to be so energy hungry that we are damaging our earth in order to be able to fuel it. And you are very correct that, you know, at the end of the day, it's each of our demand that causes that energy, right? But that demand does not come from 
you know, just needing the, you know, needing clothes, et cetera. It comes from that sort of culture that we've created about creativity and fashion and excite, you know, and all those exciting things that globalization's also brought us. And so fundamentally, because companies and governments are made up of people, then we have to look at our role, not just as a consumer, which is one of the most important roles we have, by the way, completely, what I choose to buy from where and how, and how I tell the brands how I feel about what they're selling to me is my one of my most strongest and important powers as a person. But also when I go to work every day and I look at my company or my, my industry and what my industry's role is in this story and playing that role actively thinking about sustainability is also a major part of my job. And what, at BNP, for example, we break down for everyone that you have four layers of impact as a human being. The first impact is that you're part of the finance industry or whatever industry that could be. Maybe it's events, maybe it's fashion, et cetera. But you're part of an industry. So what is your industry's role? In BNP, we believe our industry's role is we have to finance the energy transition, which means that we've stopped, we've stopped um, investing in any new coal financing. We stopped investing in companies that have more than 30% from coal, et cetera. So, and I, you know, we have a list of things that we stopped financing. We're one of the strongest. We still have a long ways to go. It's still very difficult because we have a lot of international clients. But in the banking industry, we're one of the strongest in this divestment. And that, we believe, is our industry's impact. And then we say, what is your client level impact? Because you have clients. And sometimes we have external clients, but maybe you work in the IT department and you have internal clients because at the end of the day, you're an individual. That's your role, right? And so we say, if you have an external client, you need to understand, let's say that client's in the retail sector, what are their sustainability challenges? What is their contribution to climate change? And how are you gonna help them raise the funds that they need to reduce that or to change their business model to adapt to what is required of the natural environment around them? And if you're in the IT department, are you thinking about the IT infrastructure of our offices and how you're going to reduce the data center energy consumption patterns and the wastage of the IT department, for example? And then we say you have your community as well that you live in. So what is your community's impact? Do you live in the suburb where everybody's driving into the city? Do you live in the middle of the city where you're going every single day and getting a pret-a-manger that's come in a plastic wrapper, et cetera? What is the community around you that is, and what is that environmental footprint of that community? And therefore, how can you support how that community looks at it? And then we say, you are also your individual self. So whether that's choosing to be vegan, choosing your holidays in a train destination, all of those things are extremely important. But fundamentally, it goes back to that question of saying, I don't want you to look at yourself only as an individual who consumes. I want you to see your power and your influence much wider than that, because actually, you are industry, and you are government. And the government and industry is made up of people. And if the people don't act, then we won't change the government and the industry either. A call to action. Do we have another question? At the top there? Uh, developing countries um, would like to become middle class, would like, like to share in some of the benefits that we enjoy. Um, other countries led by people we might consider to be slightly less than rational, I mentioned Bolsonaro and Trump, uh, are denying this is an issue. How do we reconcile the needs of the developing world and bring the lunatics, forgive my assertion, into line with what's actually going to be required. 
Okay, I'm going to ask you to answer this briefly, but David, would you like to just kick off with that? Because I'm um, Yes. So, so I think a lot of these issues are ultimately going to have to be sorted out through technology because we do live in a globalised world. We do, we do know that there are three or four billion people who are aspiring to move into, to have the same sort of goods and services that we do and another two to three billion people behind them who are looking to move up that energy ladder as well. And I don't think that that, that, that an austerity approach in terms of energy is going to, uh, is going to work uh, as much as some people may think that that's the answer. It's going to have to be about the new energy systems that can be brought into play. So it's really going to have to be a technological solution ultimately that uh, plays into it with, I think, the financial markets really steering investment into those technologies and not into the technologies of, of the last century. Okay. April, did you want to comment? Because I suspect your solution might be not purely technology. <laughs> well, what, are we, what is it going to take to turn this ship around? And where we have, in a developed country like the UK, established infrastructure, it's going to be really difficult, as Gareth was saying, to actually turn things around, to actually go into all of those homes and fix their energy efficiency, to go in and... Um, change all of the, the transport systems and change our habits about road building. But in countries where we don't have that long established infrastructure, there's an opportunity to start with a better starting point. And so I think that that's something that we should be looking to. So I've spent most of my uh, professional life in India and I've spent most of my personal life growing up in Africa and the Middle East and in Central Asia. So so 420 million people don't have access to electricity. It's It's life or death. Right? It's much cheaper for them to get coal and build it. They know how to build it. They have the infrastructure. They have the, um, the people, the, the employment uh, culture to do that, etc. They have the cheap coal that they're getting from Australia. It makes a lot more sense. And, and literally, it means whether or not we can build a hospital. And when I worked in a solar light company, we were selling solar lights in villages in Africa and India. And I have to tell you, you know, we were patting ourselves on the back because we would have entire villages that all used our solar lights. So they put a little panel on their thatched roof and they could light up their home. They could use, um, they could use uh, a fan. They could, you know, we were trying to find ways where they could even power maybe a, a small fridge or a TV. And, and in doing so, you know, they were stopping to use kerosene, which was either burning down their homes or like or their children were breathing it in with lots of lung issues, et cetera. And we felt really proud of ourselves that we had come up with these decentralized solutions on energy. And then we um, hired a PhD student who went out and study because we're like, okay, we need to do impact assessment and we need to tell our investors all the health benefits we've created, et cetera. So can you go out and study the villages that we've affected? And what he found out in his studies is that the Indian government was looking at the villages that we'd worked in and then saying, oh, okay, so we don't need to electrify that village and removing them from, and you know, I mean, we can give them a few lights, but we can't give a hospital level of electricity through those solar panels. And so it is so complex. And the answer is that we don't have the answer because the only way that we're going to actually solve this is if we stop looking at it as this is my nation and my development trajectory and this is your nation and your development trajectory because at the end of the day, whether it's China building more coal plants or India, that's going to affect more hotter summers and heat waves in Europe which are killing off people and killing off the plants here too. So we cannot, unfortunately, and I don't know how we're going to get there, and maybe looking at politics, maybe, maybe you guys have the answer, but it's, it's not a, it, somehow we have to find a way to break that conversation 
from my policy versus your policy because at the end of the day, we all have to breathe that same air. Can I touch very quickly on the less than rational people? Really quickly. Really quickly, and I'll take two more quick questions. Um, just, on, just on your point about the less than rational people and the two that you mentioned, um, I do still take hope oh, yeah. uh, in relation to the less than rational people. So the Amazon is, the Amazon is still on fire. Um, the, the huge international outcry um, and the, the, the cacophony of very powerful voices um, meant that even uh, a man elected saying that he would chop down the Amazon had to act to try and put the fires out. He, had, he was forced to take action. He felt he had to act. And in America, um, you have Trump saying that it's all about coal, it's all about coal. Even the coal CEOs say, we can't make coal come back. This, is, this would be a magic trick to achieve this. Mm. And in a country where he's saying, I'm going to take um, the US out of the Paris Agreement and we're not going to cut our emissions, you have thousands upon thousands of um, cities and companies and states and, and many, many more citizens saying, no, we're still in. We're still taking climate action. And when you've got places like California still taking climate action, then it means something. And it means that the less than rational people don't have the impact they want to have. Thank you. That's encouraging, isn't it? Um, two more questions. Good evening. It's been a pleasure hearing from you. Um, my question is this. We now see student-led action on the climate emergency very visibly um, in the media and recently here in Tunbridge in our streets. But my observation as a parent was that the school's involvement, uh, very institutions that are nurturing those students, seem to be missing. Do any of the panel members have any idea why students seem to, uh, schools seem to be reluctant in coming forward to cohere the student body of action and any ideas for what schools might do in the future? Thank you. Thank you. We'll hold that and we'll take the other one. And so we'll take both together. Um, I support that as well. And maybe if the principals in Tunbridge could get together and support the students, that would be brilliant as, as a Tunbridge parent. Um, my question is, um, is linked with the Bolsonaro question. And it's, you know, I haven't, I've, talk, I've heard about climate emergency, but I've not heard the panel talk about climate justice. And for me, you can't talk about the climate change issues without talking about equity and justice. It is, you know, last week I spent my week with women from Cerrado and the Amazon in Brazil, and this woman is under human rights protection in her country for protecting the Babasu nuts, palm trees, because the farmers are fencing around her, her, her area and, and producing, you know, meat and soya for uh, export to our country. Um, so I think I would really hope that, you know, we could hear... Um, your sort of reflections on the equity and justice question. And, you know, we, we have a historical responsibility for our historical emissions. Um, and India and China per capita are much ahead than we are. Okay, thank you. So very quickly, let's, April, we'll ask you to quickly answer the question about schools because I think you might have an opinion on that, and then we'll talk generally about climate justice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the school strikes have been incredible, and this is the difficulty, because a strike is just that, right? It's not supposed to be something <laughs> that you have permission to do. And so, <laughs> and so I totally understand where teachers are in a very, very difficult position, but I do, um, I've heard uh, kind of anecdotally that different teachers in different schools were taking various positions that were actually about helping students to feel like taking part in the strike was part of their own personal development or their own social responsibility development. And I think that's a really important factor in, in this too. So I think that absolutely... So basically you turn the strike into homework. 
I mean, if that's how if that's how you get your homework done. Thank you. <laughs> Let's address the issue of climate justice briefly, because and particularly in relation to to our question there, because we all know that the impact of the climate change is far worse for for women and for developing communities, but particularly um, women across the world. So there is an issue of justice in relation to climate change, isn't there, and the climate emergency. Would you like to touch on that briefly, Gary? Yeah, and it's 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 a it's a responsibility that this country, particularly, but all wealthy countries bear um, and need to bear with very good grace and very deep pockets. Um, you know, we we we've been emitting for longest. Our wealth, um, our way of life, uh, is as a result of the the you know having been the first to discover that you could burn fossil fuels and it fueled your economy and you could make a lot of money and. Um, live as we do today um, and obviously for most of the planet that is not the case and an awful lot of what we do and an awful lot of aspects of our lifestyle um, are very detrimental to people uh, as well as to to nature uh, around the world so that's why we talk about um, all of the, the the work that we do the the, the on-the-ground conservation uh, work that we do but also the the campaigning that we do at the global level and and at the national level in the context of that balance between people nature and climate uh, and how you make sure that this works together for all of, and we work in place we work in the Cerrado WWF UK specifically works in the Cerrado and in the Amazon um, and you know our programs are designed to protect and support the people who are doing what we need to do to protect those landscapes um, and to, to to restore them um, to the position where you know they, as part of nature, can continue to look after us and and sustain the the way that we live um, at the moment. But it extends uh, it extends right the way through any sort of climate action that we take. It climate justice, a just transition, um, you know, it, it will extend to to what happens here as well. We need to get out of fossil fuels. We need to stop. Uh, digging stuff up out from under the North Sea, and it's a shame David's left the room at the time that I said that. Um, but um, but but we can't do that in a way that just throws people out of jobs. We can't do that in a way that just leaves communities behind in the way that the closure of coal mines did um, in in the 80s. You know, it has to be done with people, and it has to manage a transition, and it has to support people um, who are who are most threatened by this. And whether that is people whose jobs and livelihoods will go in large numbers in some parts of the country, places like Aberdeen, or whether that is people who are threatened by people farming for our food here in the UK in the Cerrado. You know, it is it, climate justice is 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 core to this. I agree with you. Okay. And Julie, did you want to say something very quickly? We might have time for one really brief last question because we do have to move on. I just want to say something on education. I think I used to be a school te I studied to be a school teacher. I studied specifically curriculum development. And actually, a lot of curriculum comes from government, right? So it's kind of similar in that respect. And your question of, or your, your stance on how, what should we be asking principals around the world, I think fundamentally we are in a serious crisis in education. And it's it's because all of our systems that are established and old and, and you know, based on, you know, it's hard to change a curriculum. It's a very massive process and it's an emotional process and it's a nationalist process. And we are so far behind from the real world. You know, whether it's digital issues, you know, are we, of course, now in schools there's digital solutions, but are we actually helping students understand what the world's going to be like when AI and blockchain have taken over their jobs? Are we, we're still teaching engineering and maths and science that's not nobody needs those block studies anymore this is fantastic university you should look it up it's called the african leadership university in mauritius and one in rwanda and they don't teach a degree in engineering 
you choose a problem. You could choose traffic in Nairobi and you spend your four years studying all the different things that you need to understand to solve that problem. And that's how the real world is working. And that's how we're going to find our solutions. And it's the same with climate change. You know, we're not, what are we teaching in schools about climate change? It's not the fault of the school. It's, it's, we have to rethink how we as individuals look at these issues and how businesses look at it. And, and businesses are just catching up because they, they need to survive. And, and it's going to take longer for schools and for governments to catch up as well. And we cannot be teaching you, okay, the sun comes from here and then we trap some of the sun and because of carbon emissions. That, that's just the you know, 101 of what climate change is. We need to be teaching resource allocation, resource efficiency, you know, and, and, and looking at climate within the justice conversation of social And that's very complex. And I get colleagues who say to me, oh, that's so complex. How can you like, well, we're, we're already doing enough on renewable. Now you're worried about the people. Now you're worried about this. And then you're worried that the, the, the birds are moving because of the wind farm. And I'm like, it is complex. You do equity derivatives. How can you possibly think that's not complex? <laughs> because they need really complex solutions. And we need to kind of break that fear that it shouldn't be a simple solution. It's not one policy that's going to solve this. We need complex solutions. And therefore, you need to look at you need to be able to look at very complex things and analyze them and find you know, how to break down barriers. And that's not what I think we're a little bit behind in education on looking at that on social issues, environmental issues, digitalization, and all these things that are going to depict the next 50 years. I think that's a, I think that's a great place to close. And I think the, the overriding message is that this is a... a interconnectedness is what we're looking for and that there's no one solution but equally we cannot do it on our own we have to do it together yeah. so could I ask you just to thank my, my panel thank you for fascinating <laughs> thank you for joining us this evening Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management my thanks to our producer Jim Haywood and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>